Good evening, everyone. We're going to actually um, get started, um, I think, pretty much on time this evening. I'd like to introduce myself. Some people in the room know me as Alice Kennedy, Sustainability Coordinator for the City of Baltimore. Um, and you might not know that I'm also Vice President of Baltimore Greenworks. Yes, Sustainability Coordinator, uh, City of Baltimore Office of Sustainability. And I'm also Vice President of Baltimore Greenworks, which is a local nonprofit organization that in partnership with uh, the Enoch Pratt Library hosts the Sustainable Speaker Series. And we're very excited this evening to welcome uh, McKay Jenkins for our 10th Sustainable uh, Speaker. I think that's a pretty nice distinction to put under his uh, belt. Mr. Jenkins has been uh, writing about people in the natural world for over 25 years now. And in the past few years, he's been focused on um, the growing pres presence of synthetic chemicals in our bodies, in our environment, and the connection that these chemicals have to our health um, and diseases such as cancer, hormonal imbalances, and many other uh, diseases as well. They're not just toxins that are leaking out of industrial dumps. They're the chemicals that uh, we actually leak from household materials that we find on an everyday basis, from cosmetics and cookware to fabric in our upholstery to cleaning supplies and uh, pharmaceuticals in our drinking water and pesticides that we spray on our lawn. This topic actually became uh, personal for Mr. Jenkins when a baseball-sized tumor was discovered in his abdomen and researchers began asking him questions about his exposure to toxins in his daily life. In his book, What's Gotten Into Us, Staying Healthy in a Toxic World, uh, Mr. Jenkins looks, Jenkins looks at the ways everyday things may be making us sick and shows us how we can protect ourselves by making wiser, healthier choices. Please join me in welcoming tonight's sustainable speaker, Mr. McKay Jenkins. Uh, thank you very much for coming. That introduction was so thorough, I feel like I should just say so. Any questions? I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I'm going to do my Phil Donahue impersonation here and uh, walk around. Uh, yeah, so what I'm going to do tonight, if it's all right with you, is uh, show you some slides, some images, just to kind of soften uh, the information which I'm going to give to you, which can be a little hard to to hear. Um, this, the, the way this book started, uh, as you just heard, was in fact through a personal experience of mine where I uh, went in to see my internist with what I thought was a running or a cycling injury. I, I'm a fairly active bike rider and uh, was feeling some pain in my left hip and I thought maybe it was a ligament problem or something. And he said he, he agreed and maybe you ought to go see an uh, orthopedist, which I did. Uh, and the orthopedist said, it's probably just a little ligament thing, so let's just take a quick MRI and uh, you'll take it from there, which I did. Uh, went in there and got the MRI and went home. And as these things seem to always happen, uh, the phone rang at 4.59 on a Friday uh, with a message from the uh, orthopedist that said, you have a suspicious mass in your abdomen and you need to call an oncologist, uh, goodbye. And I sort of, you know, dropped the phone and dropped my jaw. Have you ever had that? It actually does happen. Like, your jaw does unhinge, you know. Um, at the time, my wife and I had, uh, we, I mean, we still have them, but they were much younger. We had a son who was five and a daughter who was 18 months. And this is a difficult thing. I'm sure some of you have some experience with this, but it's a difficult thing to try to digest. 
Well, over time, uh, the, over the next, say, four weeks, we did what you do in this circumstance. You freak out and panic and call everybody you know and uh, ended up, thankfully, on the schedule of a surgeon in New York uh, who is known for taking these things out. Uh, it was thought to be what's known as a soft tissue sarcoma, which is not something that you want. Uh, so I went up to New York and uh, got into my surgical gown, getting ready to go in, and um, had the Dalai Lama coming in through my headphones, you know, kind of preparing myself. And uh, I don't know what it was. How long are you waiting to go into the surgical suite? A couple hours. I'm sitting there in the waiting room, and some people with a clipboard came in and said, uh, we'd like to ask you some questions about things. And I said, what could you possibly want to know from me? And they said, well, we're, you know, we're doing a study, and we would like to ask you about your exposure to synthetic chemicals. And I said, that's not something I've thought a lot about, but sure, go ahead. And they started asking me all these questions. And uh, the questions are predictable, I'm, I'm guessing you can imagine. Like, have you been exposed to industrial dump sites or hospital waste or all that kind of stuff? And I said, you know, I've, been had, I've had two careers. I've been a journalist and a professor, right? I haven't worked in a, you know, a film processing plant or a petrochemical plant or anything like that. I push paper around for a living. Uh, but then they started asking things like, so what about uh, stain-resistant chemicals? And I thought, well, I mean, I, actually, I'm not as, as naive as I'm making myself sound. I actually sort of had the suspicion that, like, what's in this carpeting here probably, if you looked at it, was not something that you were going to be happy to find out about. But I hadn't really thought of it this clinically. But so have you ever been exposed to stain resistors or, or uh, flame retardants or phthalates or bisphenol A or lead or arsenic or mercury or polybrominated diphenyl ethers or... And I, you know, my head started to assume. Now, don't forget, I'm like minutes from going in to meet my maker, you know, as far as I know. So I answered, yeah, uh, no, 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 to all these questions, as far as I knew. Uh, and then I went into the operating suite. And, uh, you know, I, I was very upset, as you can imagine. And uh, the, anesthesi he, he, the anesthesiologist said, well, can I do anything to make you feel better? And I was like, how about a beer, you know? And, <laughs> and he said, I'll give you something better than that. He said, Start at 20, count backwards, and I got to 19, and that was the end. And I woke up, uh, I think, what it was, four hours later, and uh, at the end of my bed, my wife and my doctor, my surgeon, were smiling at me. And I thought, that's a good sign. And it turned out that this tumor, which was the size of a baseball, was benign, lo and behold. Now, they, they did a reset, what do they call it? They do a... Um, yeah, whatever that thing is called. They take they take a you know cell sample, a biopsy. They biopsy this thing on the spot. Now, it wasn't... They didn't do the slice that they had to send to the lab and get the real heavy-duty, like, precise results, but it's pretty clear that it was going to be a happy ending. So here I was, never having been sick, uh, in fact, never having had cancer, but having had this massive thing taken out of me, and all these people at Sloan Kettering were saying, uh, we don't know what this thing is, but we have some suspicions, so let us ask you these questions. So I came out of this, uh, this experience with uh, a tumor out of me and a book about to, become, about to come out of me, and that's, that's how this thing was born. So it turns out uh, I'm a professor of English and journalism, and I write books for a living. So what do you do when you have mysteries in your head? When you're a writer, you go out and try to figure out, try to solve them. So that's what I did. For three years, I went around and uh, got my hands on every scientific study I could find um, and tried to piece this thing together. Now, the book ends, I'll tell you right up front, with lots of helpful hints, you know, like the kind of women's magazine thing, like 213 things you can do to make yourself safer. Like, it has that at the back. But I'll just tell you right up front, I, I think Sandra Steingraber was here recently, and she actually has written a piece about this. Uh, people, when you talk about toxic synthetic chemicals and, and cancer or 
uh, endocrine disruption or you know birth uh, defects or whatever you're talking about autism they, people always want to know what can I do right now to change this and she gets set this a magazine piece she wrote said she gets sick of having to answer that question because it's it's fine and it might make you feel better but the what questions you really want to attack are the structural things like how is it that we got to this place where our lives are super saturated with this stuff and so I'm going to show you some images and I'm going to run you through like the history of what we call the, the synthetic century. And you're going to see kind of how we ended up where we are. And then ask me all the practical questions you want. But what I'd really like you to do is think about uh, how we popped into this particular universe. Because the world did not always look the way it does now. And to me, I mean, I can tell you right now to go throw out your Teflon pants. Like, that's easy. I can tell you to go throw out your flame retardant mattress or whatever it is. But I'd like you to think for a little bit just about the structural things that we're talking about and uh, see if that doesn't raise some other questions for you. This happens to be a nice wood paneled room. Now, if this is actually real wood that we're looking at, that would be good because it means it's not fiberboard glued together with formaldehyde. So that's good. Uh, the rug, not so much. I mean, I don't know what's going on with this rug. I mean, it's possible, I suppose, that this thing is made out of wool because it's not wall to wall, but I doubt it. Uh, and if it isn't, then you know, there's that. We'll talk about that later. Edgar Allan Poe, I have a, a friend who's in the book, actually, who was convinced that Edgar Allan Poe, along with most other 19th century uh, gothic horror writers, were all uh, out of their minds because they were suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning. So it's kind of appropriate that we're in the Poe room. So this is, this is sort of an image from the book. This is what you'll see. Uh, and this is the title of it, What's Gotten Into Us, Staying Healthy in a Toxic World. Even the subtitle of this book was come up with by my publisher who has to figure out a way to somehow make a book on this subject seem less threatening to potential book buyers because nobody really wants to read about this, which is really frustrating when it comes to book sales, I got to tell you. But you know, <laughs> the information is absolutely uh, easy to digest and understandable and actually good to know if you think about it. Anyway, so here's what we're going to do. So uh, this story starts in 1912. If I can find a nice straight thing. Whoop, sorry, that blew my punchline. Okay, so here's the Titanic, right? Why was this <clears throat> why was this ship so unusual? 1912, the most luxurious boat ever created had no plastic on it. Now think about that, if you can, just in historical terms. So that's 1912, that is what, 99 years ago. Right? Uh, Wow, that's impressive. Most importantly, think about how long that was before World War II, because World War II is going to become the kind of critical date. Think about this. So these two are smiling because they're not being exposed to synthetic chemicals on the Titanic. Um, as the 20th century moves along, we start to discover oil. This is, this, you know, like everything else, oil is at the root of, uh, of the problem. So lots of oil. 20th century moves on. I'll try to get out of your way here. Um, Lots of oil. Uh, petrochemicals come out of the ground. They have to go somewhere, and they do. They spill into the ocean or the Gulf of Mexico. Not all petrochemicals, despite what you read in the news, spills into the ocean. Some of it goes into our cars, but a lot more of it, well, I don't know more of it, a lot of it also goes into making other things. Now, I won't do this to you a lot, but there are some numbers that will blow your mind. There are actually lots of numbers that will blow your mind. Here's one number that will blow your mind. Every day the U.S. produces or imports 27 trillion pounds of synthetic chemicals. It's enough to fill a line of 623,000 gasoline tanker trucks 
each one carrying 8,000 gallons from San Francisco to Washington and back. Now that sentence starts with the words every day. Okay? Now this goes on year after year after year after year after year. And some of that stuff goes into making things like the rug. Right? This is kind of the point I want to leave you with, is that the world is, Michael Pollan says this in Omnivore's Dilemma, he says our, our industrial food system is floating on an ocean of oil. And the same thing is true for our consumer products. U.S. chemical companies constitute a $637 billion industry. They produce raw materials for 70,000 products. So go into any big box store and just walk down the aisles. Now, I'll just take a quick break here. This book is broken into, I think, six, five or six chapters. The first chapter is devoted to what are called body burden studies. And I'll tell you about this in a minute. But this is where, in this case, I went to Maine and I interviewed people who had had samples of their blood, urine, and hair tested for the presence of synthetic chemicals. And this is like uh, the head of the, these were not just, I mean, they were random people, but they were specifically chosen for their effectiveness at delivering the message. One of them was the head of the Maine Organic Farmers Association. One was a 28-year-old woman who'd grown up in um, Arusta County, which is like way up on the Canadian border. This is like hours north of Bangor, right? This is, this is remote, as remote as you can get in the United States, let's say. And lots of young people, lots of old people, but people in rural, poor Maine. And all of them had loads of stuff in their bodies, as everyone in this room does, is the point. Right? Everything that I've just mentioned, the flame retardants, stain resistors, Teflon chemicals, arsenic, mercury, the whole bit. Uh, so that's, that's one chapter. So another chapter, I invite a toxicologist to walk through my house, the guy who has the whole theory about air ground Poe. He walks through my house, room by room by room, and points out all the various things that I am oblivious to. Like, for example, the stacks of half-empty paint cans in my basement that are like sending their you know, neurotoxins straight up to the floorboards into my kitchen, for example. Or you know, the uh, PVC shower curtain. Uh, and many, many other things. But next chapter after that is my wife and I go through a big box store, a Walmart, and go aisle by aisle by aisle, and we just pull stuff off the shelf and look at it and try to figure out what's on the label, what's not on the label, and why. And you find out, for example, in uh, the automotive section, there are products that'll say on the label, warning, in the state of California, this product is known to contain ingredients that are known carcinogens. And it'll say it on the label. And you say to yourself, I guess that's good that it's on the label. Do I buy this thing? At least I have some information to go on. What you don't realize is you walk into the cosmetics aisle, and the same ingredients are in the cosmetics, but they don't require them to put a label on it because the cosmetics industry is virtually unregulated and is a $60 billion a year industry and can muscle the legislators to not force them to put stuff on labels. So the question is, all the stuff that we're going to be talking about, if you think about it, defies common sense. Like, why would it? makes sense to regulate something that you have to put on your engine and not regulate something you put on your face or your fingernails. So that, that's the, what I call the big box store chapter. The next chapter of that is about drinking water, which we'll talk about later, and about things like uh, pharmaceutical drugs that you can pull out of your tap. Uh, and then the last chapter, which is my favorite chapter, is about lawn chemicals. I get extremely exercised about pesticides for some reason. I think it's partially because I live in a beautiful watershed so what we're talking about is not just health, it's also about environmental stuff, and this stuff all just goes back and forth and back and forth on itself. So anyway, I, I, I mentioned that only because we're looking at big box aisles here, and if you go into a big box store, we'll just try it sometime. Walk down the aisle and pull in any aisle and start pulling stuff off the shelves. Uh, so here's the point. A great number of these products are not regulated, which means we don't really know what they're made of or how they affect our bodies. 
seems everything we have is made out of plastic, like our food. I love looking at like 1940s and 50s era uh, you know, marketing campaigns for stuff. And you'll see the way people went crazy for the fact that you can now wrap food in plastic. And we now, of course, see that all over the place. Our bodies, uh, if you look at um, images like this one of the way women reacted to DuPont's release of the first nylon stockings, I tell my students it was like a Justin Bieber concert. Like they were like scratching each other's eyes out to get nylons. So because the new thing was to wrap your legs in synthetic material. It just seems so bizarre. So this is, you can see how giant, that's a woman on a crane climbing up a giant leg. Just uh, very interesting. Our, our houses, I grew up next to a paint store that had this a big neon version of this symbol, co uh, cover the earth. Uh, and so we have, right, our faces. Cosmetics industry, $60 billion, 400 chemicals. This is something we can talk about. 400 chemicals using cosmetics in the United States are prohibited in other countries, especially Europe. So you have factories in Europe that are creating a line of cosmetics, some of which they sell in the US, some of which they sell in Europe. But in the ones in Europe are safer, because they have to be. And they, they, they can still put the bad stuff in American uh, products. Our lawns, like I say, I could talk all day about lawns. So here we are, uh, 1957, I think. This is you know Levittown, or the Levittown wannabes. Uh, I just finished teaching a course on the, the ecological impact of suburbanization. It is absolutely astonishing to look at it when you, when you kind of um, scale it up. Like when you take this and you think about tens of thousands of houses being built in a matter of a year or two, and then you spread that thing nationwide, and you think about leveling landscapes. And then, of course, the question is, um, well, we'll talk about this in a second. Uh, lawns, OK, they used to be seen as a you know, haven for suburbanites in the 40s and 50s to this. Because you know, once you start introducing chemicals uh, and you find out that they can do something pretty good, like get rid of mosquitoes, you start, as we do, going big. And now we're going to have, I mean, talk to anybody in the room who grew up in a neighborhood where they use DDT, and you'll hear stories about getting fogged by the DDT truck. And I have no scientific evidence for this, but a friend of mine grew up in Florida. Uh, he's about in his mid-50s, I think, and he said oh, he remembers these trucks going by. And he says now his old neighborhood has like a, a Parkinson's cluster. I, I don't know. I don't know what the studies say about that. But he says, I don't know what the evidence is. That's just what's happening. So I, that's, sorry about that. I just, that's a gimmicky thing. I kind of. <laughs> uh, so today, I, the, I, I keep, in this book, I keep trying to push into an environmental thing. My editor kept on saying, this is a health book. It's a health book. It's a health book. And I said, you can't separate the two. But I do really take a bat to lawns uh, for some reason. I'm not sure why. But um, you know what, the question is, what does a lawn want to be when it grows up? A lawn wants to be a forest when it grows up. So how do you keep it looking like this? You have to mow it all the time, and you have to spray it all the time. And if you just look at that, that you know, that we, a good question to ask yourself is aesthetically, why is it that we consider that to be the, 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 the ultimate version of a landscape? And there are reasons for that. And the reasons happen to be tied up with our weird obsession with like uh, England. <laughs> and we can talk about that later. But from an ecological standpoint, this is a nightmare. Uh, as a colleague of mine who shows up quite a bit in this book, if you're a bird and you are migrating from Costa Rica to Canada, uh, and you wake up, you, you human wake up in the morning and you hear bird song out your window, chances are the bird has just landed after a 300 mile flight and it's now like starving to death and needs to find something to eat. And he looks down and he sees that and he's not going to hang out very long because there's nothing that he can eat. And I don't know if it's, if you, you're hip to this, it kind of was a, 
was a real come to Jesus moment for me to realize that uh, specific things eat specific things, and they don't eat anything else. They eat specific things. And birds can't just like land on your lawn and start eating. I mean, I don't know why it took me 45 years to figure that out, but that's true, right? They can't just eat that. Uh, and there's nothing there. And if the, in fact, the trees, if we look closely, the trees that are there are probably not native trees. They're probably imported from China or Japan or England. <laughs> anyway, birds, there are like all kinds of population crashes of birds up and down the East Coast. And, and one of the big problems is the uh, incredible acreage devoted to lawns. So we know about this, right? So every spring, Maryland, God knows, right? This is the Bay watershed. We see this all the place. It looks like this. It looks like this. Armies of these trucks coming by trying to sell you this stuff. Okay, so since the Titanic went down with no petrochemicals aboard, products made from them, synthetics are now everywhere. You see images like this. That's recycled, right? That's a, that should make you, that's supposed to make you feel cheerful because that's the stuff that's going to get recycled. Of course, you know that a very small percentage of stuff actually gets recycled. Uh, you see images like this. You've read about the so-called Pacific Gyre, you know, the big garbage patch out there that all this stuff, once it kind of swirls around for a while, it breaks down into very small, tiny pieces, microscopic pieces, which ends up going up the food chain, and you find all kinds of nasty things happening out there in the oceans. Here's something weird. Scientists can find toxic synthetic man-made chemicals on the top of Aconcagua, the highest peak in South America. They can find them in Inuit bodies in the Arctic. They can find them in beluga whales in the St. Lawrence River up in Canada. Now, the question is, how does that happen? These, these guys don't hang around near industrial plants. Of course, the truth is that um, synthetics don't just leak in the ocean. We're familiar with this. I mean, the fact that we're familiar with it raises other questions, like how is it that we've become so familiar with it and even numb to it? Uh, we know this. This stuff we see all the time now, right? The trouble is, oh, I won't linger on that. Um, <laughs> but the truth is that this stuff does show up. I mean, it actually shows up. Uh, clinically demonstrably in our bodies. In fact, if we wanted to, we could swab our finger on the dust in this room and put it under a microscope and they would find all the stuff in the dust in the room, including stuff, strangely enough, that doesn't come from the room. Like, if you swab the dust in your house, you can find not only your neighbor's pesticides, because I know you don't use pesticides, but you can also find in lots of places DDT in your dust in your house. Now, how is that possible when DDT was banned 40 years ago? This stuff does not disappear, right? It hangs around and blows around. It gets caught in air currents, it gets caught in water currents, it gets in food chain currents, and just swirls around. That's why it ends up in all these places. 80,000 chemicals in use today. How many have been adequately tested for any kind of health consequences? About 200, uh, which is so few that you can barely graph it. Uh, and how many have been banned in the history of banning? Five have been banned. Where does this stuff come from? Where does it go? Well, many chemicals, as I said, are labeled in car as carcinogens in the hardware aisle, but not in the cosmetics aisle. This is just one of the many things that makes your blood boil when you start thinking about it. One in 10 American families uses a commercial lawn care service, and one in five applies pesticides itself. 10% of pesticides in common use today have been adequately tested. In Denver, studies show kids whose yards are treated with pesticides are four times more likely to develop soft tissue tumors than kids whose yards were not. Now, here's a weird thing. Again, you think about scaling this stuff. You may think my eighth of an acre is not a big problem, but you start scaling up. There are 43 million acres of lawn in the United States. That's about that big. 
Now you might think, well, that's only one fiftieth of the U.S. That's not so bad. But think about what it takes to—I mean, think about what it takes to mow or spray Nebraska once a week. And think what it would take to mow or spray Baltimore or this block once a week. That's a lot of chemicals. Suburban fertilizers and pesticides cause widespread damage to rivers and bays. I don't have to tell you this. It's only when I leave Maryland that I have to tell people this. They don't—they're not really hip to the fact that you live in a watershed. We know about this, right? This is, this is something we in Baltimore are familiar with, these dead zones, these hypoxic uh, algae blooms. Pharmaceutical drugs. Now, here's another thing. You hip to this story, right? So they, the Associated Press did a story about three or four years ago where they studied munici municipal water supplies in every major American city. They just pulled glasses of tap water, and they tested them for pharmaceutical drugs, and they found everything. You know, and then you can get jokey about this. Like, for example, they found Viagra in the water in L.A., and you say, well, that makes a certain kind of sense. You know, <laughs> they found uh, antipsychotic drugs in the water coming out of the Philadelphia system. You know, you name you you name the system, they're pulling stuff out. That's right in right in your glass. Now, it's not granted. None of these things, like take one glass of Viagra in L.A., you're not gonna. Well, you're not gonna. You know, you're not gonna. <laughs> you take an antipsychotic in Philly, you're not gonna freak out. I, whatever. But it's these trace amounts is the question, and the critics of this whole line of argument say, well, they're just. They're so small. These amounts are parts per billion or parts per million. And you say, well, yeah, but how many parts per billion does it take? I mean, you drink a lot of water. And it's not just the water. You're also getting the stuff off this carpet. And you're getting the stuff off your Teflon pan. And you're getting the stuff off your mattress and your children's pajamas and your Teflon pan and the whole bit. And how many you know, exposures to those things over how many months or years does it take to become a legitimate amount? And that is the big mystery. We know the pharmaceutical thing is enormous, out of control, you might say. Of course, lots of stuff are made in China, and we know about China. They put diethylene glycol, antifreeze chemicals, in things like pharmaceuticals. Uh, but China also makes everything else that we use, uh, including everything that you find in Walmart. And as you probably recall, a few years ago, there were companies with recalls on children's toys numbering in the tens of millions of pieces including things like beloved old Thomas, the tank engine, who turns out was being painted with lead paint in China. And now you think, well, you know, Baltimore knows about lead paint, right? We know about that. But we thought we'd licked it. We thought we'd figured out how to get lead paint out, or how to get lead out of our gasoline, how to stop painting our houses with lead paint. But lo and behold, our kids are buying these toys painted with lead because they're made somewhere else where it's even more unregulated than it is here. And so this becomes a big question. And of course, what industry, this like here's another thing to make your blood boil. Industry says, you're not supposed to put a Thomas the Tank Engine in your mouth. And you think, like, have you never had a kid, you industry people? Uh, so 20 million pieces of children's toys and jewelries are called because of lead contamination. But not just lead, of course, a lot of these things are made with plastics, which are endocrine disruptors like phthalates. You've heard a lot about phthalates, like the stuff that's in this bottle of water here. Like, see this, how crinkly that is? The reason it's crinkly is it's made with stuff called phthalates. You've probably heard about this. If it's hard plastic, it's probably made with something called bisphenol A, both of which are endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And, you know, it is, you can test it. It leaks from the bottle into the water, and it goes from the water into your body. So, you know, for years, kids' baby bottles were made with bisphenol A, which, you know, every mother and father knows. You wake up at 3 in the morning, you got to feed your kid. You go downstairs, you put that bottle in the oven or on the stovetop, you warm it up. And of course, that forces the plastic to leak into the milk even faster. And a lot of these chemicals are fat-soluble, which means you take them and you put them in your baby's or 
it, it attaches to the fat cells in your baby, or if you're nursing, the, the stuff that you've been exposed to that's in your breast tissue is now moving uh, through breast milk to your child as well. Uh, flame retard, it's another crazy thing. <sighs> Mattresses made with neurotoxins. These things are, are also fat soluble. Now, this is a good story about uh, Sweden. Europe is way ahead of the US. Scandinavia is way ahead of the rest of Europe. In Sweden, they were able to prove, using body burden studies, that these PBD flame retards were showing up in women's bodies all over the place, particularly in their breast tissue. And they were able to show in a laboratory that these chemicals are, pro are problematic. They're problematic for, uh, all kind of, for cancer and for neurotoxicity. And Sweden says, that's all we need to know. We're banning them. And they banned them. And in three years, the amount of these chemicals showing up in women's breast tissue dropped by 30%. Just like that. Now, in this country, what industry says is, you can't prove to me, right? You can't prove to me that your problems are caused by my product, and therefore they're not banned. In fact, they're alive and well. Children's pajamas, you find this stuff in computers. That's, I think, the last time I'll do that to you. <laughs> Phthalates, plastic bottles, uh, cancer developmental problems. In Maine, where they did this body burden study, Maine is actually a leading uh, state in terms of regulating this stuff. Uh, when these environmental health uh, um, advocates were lobbying for this, they blew up, a, they inflated a 30-foot-tall rubber duck and brought it into the state house and said, this thing is what we're talking about, because this thing is made with phthalates, and this is what we want. Not, and industry says, well, you're not supposed to put a rubber duck in your mouth. you know." Uh, strangely, these things are also found in air fresheners, which is another thing that will start making your blood boil. This is like when someone introduces you to a new song and you've heard it for the first time and then suddenly you hear it everywhere. Like I now, I am now putting this earworm into your head now, right? From as soon as you leave this room, you're going to go into public places and you're going to start noticing that they all have motion sensor uh, air fresheners squirting at you, right? In bathrooms, malls, you, anywhere you go. In fact, well, not in here as far as I can tell. But go into the bathroom here and probably yes. It'll be in the corner of the wall and there'll be a little hole. And you know, you might think it's a camera looking at you. It's not that bad, but it's something squirting at you. The stuff that's squirting at you is not something you want in your body. It's aerosolized, you're breathing it in, and uh, you don't want it. Also in stuff like body lotions, detergents, all that kind of stuff. So what should we do? That's the question, right? Anything that smells, you probably want to get rid of, including, I hate to say it, things like colognes, laundry detergents. If it smells really nice, it's probably Synthetic. It's made with stuff that you don't want. Water bottles, get rid of them. Teflon, paints, all that junk. Uh, main thing is go old school, right? Go pre-World War II. Try to live like your grandparents did or your great-grandparents. Grandma didn't need synthetic chemicals and neither do you. Here's a little a theft from Michael Pollan, right? The idea that apples are better than Twinkies. And try to apply that same lesson to the other things that you buy. Just like you should eat real food with ingredients you can recognize, so you should buy things from materials made from materials that you can pronounce. Like imagine that. What a radical idea that is. Like buy stuff made out of wood, <laughs> wool, you know, not uh, these Latinate multisyllabic things. Same thing. Buy cotton sleepwear. Try to avoid flame retardant pajamas for your kids. Cotton is tricky because cotton is a very difficult crop to grow and requires lots of pesticides typically. So you know, you buy organic food, have you ever thought about buying organic clothes? Now you think, well, it's too expensive. Well, you know, what's your health work is, worth is the question. Laundry detergents. Seventh generation is a good company to get to know. Uh, I profile them in the book. They make 
I talk to the guy, the chemist who designs their products. They make everything from logic detergents to you know, dish soap to all that stuff. Chlorine-free toilet paper. Uh, fine mattresses made out of wool or natural latex. It's IKEA, being a Swedish company, sells this stuff. It's not a bad place to shop. The kitchen used stainless steel. There's this new fangle stuff called olive oil that helps stuff not stick. You might have heard of it. They've just invented it. It's actually really good. Uh, try to find wood cabinetry that's not made with plywood or other particle board because all that stuff is glued together with formaldehyde. Uh, you want to stay away from uh, anything. It says here, clean your kitchen, your bathroom, your laundry, your teeth, your hair, anything else that needs cleaning with products made from plants. You know, chlorine you may associate with swimming pools and happy days of youth or something, but chlorine was also used as a, uh, you know, a chemical weapon. Uh, chem chlorine comes with big skull and crossbound, as, by the way, does fluoride. If you ever go into a water treatment plant, fluoride is not a benign substance. Uh, and I don't need to get all conspiratorial to ask you to think about, like, why is it that that stuff is put in our water and not other things? Like, why don't they just dump vitamin C in our water or something? I don't know. Anyway, seventh generation, uh, drink water from the tap. This is a complicated thing because tap water is not perfect, but it's better than that. Because tap water is regulated, this stuff is not regulated, and tap water does not come wrapped in plastic. So if you're wondering about what to drink, drink tap water. If you want to spend money on getting all these funky reverse osmosis filters, you can do that if you've got the dough for it. But tap water in lots of places is actually pretty good. Uh, don't, if you can avoid wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, which is typically treated with toxic stain resistors, try to get wool rugs. Avoid synthetic furniture polishes. Get upholstery curtains made out of natural fibers. Blah, blah, blah. You know, this is all very commonsensical. Make stuff out, get stuff out of wood. If you can, children's toys, they still actually make some of them out of wood. Uh, get rid of your air fresheners. They don't freshen the air. If you want to freshen your air, open your window. Uh, this is my, uh, my wife's favorite thing. She says, you know, if you want your house to smell like an apple pie, bake an apple pie. You know, this brings up, not to get all profound, this is the kind of stuff I do with my students, like, uh, the idea that you have to spray your house to make it smell like an apple pie is actually a very symbolic gesture, if you think about it. Like, none of these kids even know how to cook. They've probably never eaten a real homemade pie, apple pie, but they, they need to associate the smell with something that comes out of a spray can, and that's actually, uh, you know, a fairly damning, it's a damning indictment of a generation. You know, it's, it's, this, is, this is what we've come to, right? It's like a, it's a simulacrum of the real thing. Okay, if you use cosmetics, avoid products with no ingredient labels, which is hard to do sometimes. Uh, look for products that brag about their organic or at least plant-based ingredients. In fact, this is a good rule of thumb for anything you buy. Support companies that overwhelm you with information about their product. This is what seventh generation does. You look at a label on a seventh generation thing and it's actually, it, it's a pain in the butt to read it all. because it, like, it folds out. You know? But at least you're, there's something there to look at. In most of these other products, there's nothing to look at, and that's for a reason. Safecosmetics.org is a good website. I'll show you in a minute. Uh, basement in the garage, get rid of all that old paint, adhesives, caulks, lacquers, all that junk. Get it out of your house, at least. You know, there's a reason you have to take that to a special dump day to get rid of it, right? There's no joke. Like, you, you really, I'll just tell you one thing. We're almost done here. Um, when the toxicologist came to my house, he said the most effective thing I can do to convince people they've got all this junk in their house is to t make them go around their house and collect it all and put it in a big plastic bag and tie a knot in it and leave it sit for, a, a uh, let's say, a month. And after a month, open it up and stick your face in there. And that will reveal to you in a very dramatic way what you're breathing every day, except you don't really notice it because it's coming in small doses. 
And then he said, what if we could wrap a big plastic bag around Walmart? You know? <laughs> the lawn, get rid of your, your lawn service company. Uh, in fact, get rid of your lawn, is what I would say, uh, if you could. Certainly get rid of your lawn care company. If they spray chemicals, find somebody who doesn't. Uh, consider tearing up parts of your lawn and replacing with native trees, shrubs, flowers. The butterflies and the song. This is your feel-good ending, right? Butterflies, songbirds, they will all be very happy that you did. And in fact, your lawn will look really nice. And maybe, as in my neighborhood, I, I would love to think this is a trend. My house is the only house on the block that gets monarch butterflies every year. Why? Because I plant milkweed. And all the kids in the neighborhood come and go, oh, there, he's the Jenkins house. It's got butterflies again. And I like to think that all my neighbors are like, damn, how come I don't have butterflies? And I'd like to say it's because you don't have plants. But if you, it's very easy. It doesn't cost very much. Go out and spend a couple of bucks, buy some plants, put them in the ground, and five years later you have this you know, big old meadow. And I mean, well, I could say more about that. Uh, goldfinches, we love the gold. They come down and eat your native plants. Doug Talmy has a great book. He's in, he's, I use him in my book as well, but he's got a book called Bringing Nature Home, which is all about this, like this idea of the, the if you scale up the ecological benefit of replacing, your, of replacing suburban lawns with native plants, you have an enormous ecological benefit. So that's that. That's the book. Uh, my, I have a website that I put together to answer lots of these sort of you know, practical questions about what to do. It has all these other, it'll link you to Safe Cosmetics and good places to buy toys and blah, 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 blah. How to, if you have multiple chemical sensitivity, which you know, that, that is where you, you know, you're in a room and somebody's got the wrong kind of cologne and you get a migraine, it has resources for all that uh, and is a good place just to kind of keep up to speed. I'm constantly filling that up with new stuff. So that's it. Thank you very much. And I'll take any questions that you might have. Angela, go ahead. So one thing that I've always been confused about, um, it's an economics question. So I spent two years living in Europe, and at that time they had passed some packaging laws saying that packaging had to be smaller. And so you go to the grocery store, and the exact same projects that you would see in the US, the same volume, everything, were in smaller packages. And just like this, you're saying, you know, these products in Europe don't have these chemicals, but the ones here do, and so on and so forth. I've always wondered, isn't that more expensive for a company to do? I mean, I don't know, are they do they have manufacturing plants there and manufacturing plants here? Is it all being manufactured in China with different standards? It just, it seems like it'd be a lot cheaper to just make it all the same, I guess. Well, maybe there's an industrialist in the room that could answer that. My sense is that it's more expensive for them to make better products, and so they would rather not. The so if your question is, is it more expensive to make two than it would be to make all one better product? And I don't have an answer to that, except the answer has to be that it isn't, because if, they, if it was easier, they would have already done it. Um, the, um, people ask me about my kind of general feeling or reaction, like what's the most in intense thing that you now feel that you've learned having done this project. Are you freaked out to walk out of your house or whatever? And I, I have no more or less hypochondriasis than I ever did before, but I have left this project feeling uh, seriously uh, uh, perturbed by the relationship between industry and government. 
uh, and I, I know that's not rocket science, but like when you start looking at the way business is actually conducted and its refusal to acknowledge the public health consequences of things they make, it's really aggravating. And then when you look at the government agencies that are theoretically supposed to be regulating them and they are nowhere in sight, there's a, there's a statistic in here that I actually got from another journalist who said that uh, if you look at the budget for the agency that monitors cosmetics in this country, it has the same budget as the agency in Portland, Oregon that monitors traffic lights. Now, we're talking about a $60 billion a year industry that is regulated by, you know, with a, I don't know what it is, a couple of, I don't know what the budget is, but the numbers are equivalent for those two. It just shows you, uh, I mean, we know this, we, you know, people, you hear about the, I hope this won't offend anybody, but like the Tea Party talks about uh, like wanting to deregulate everything, get the get these regulators off our backs. We in this story, we already live in a deregulated world. We live in a world that is essentially deregulated. And what we end up with is flame retardants in our breast tissue. And in Europe, I mean, I don't, you may or may not be sympathetic with a socialist idea of things, but they have a public health aesthetic over there. And if the stuff shows up in your breast tissue, they get rid of the stuff. And it just seems to make common sense. And it also, without getting too self-righteous about this, you know you end up paying for this down the line. Right? If, you know, if you think about the health consequences in terms of dollars and cents that somebody's going to end up paying for down the line anyway, it doesn't make any sense to allow this ongoing flood of stuff to keep saturating people. Go ahead. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, well, a um, few concerns and maybe one silver lining. Um, one is I'm concerned that because we're, we've been uh, un, unwilling guinea pigs for the chemical industry since I was born, I'm a late baby boomer, um, all this more and more chemicals is going to have an effect on the children and we wonder what's wrong with the like school scores, why they're going down, because our kids are being developmentally disabled by all these chemicals, slowly but perceptively. I'm worried that life expectancy in this country is starting to go backwards. And um, as for detergent, I use Eagle Ball laundry pellets. And there's a good guide. And if you want to get rid of mosquitoes, build a bat house. I just had a letter to the editor defending bats. And there's a wonderful website that I've used called thegoodguide.com, founded by, you probably know it already, <laughs> done by Dana O'Rourke of Wisconsin. Download it to your cell phone. Aim it at the barcode of up to 75,000 in growing products. And you will instantly get a list of what's really in it, who makes it, who the parent company is, and what its social impact is on a score of one to 10. And if it's not good, they have suggestions on something better, <laughs> thegoodguide.com. It, it's terrific. Thank I you. use That's it to shop for the kids. That's a good suggestion. Um, can I just make a quick comment on the whole developmental thing? Um, they are, there have been studies connecting lead poisoning with behavioral problems, for example. And they say, again, there are probably people in the room who know more about this than I do, but uh, you know, lead has a dramatic impact on, on brain development for children. And one thing they think it may do is, as children grow older, it may uh, disinhibit some of their kind of self-policing behavior. And there's some thought that, uh, I mean, I, this is a complicated topic, and I don't mean to su suggest a simple solution, but that lead poisoning at a young age may contribute to things, even to things like urban violence later. They also, there have been studies that say that uh, lead is, rather than being fat-soluble, lead is stored in bones. And there are some studies that suggest that as people age, and their bones, you know, as you start to get osteoporosis, your bones, start, your bones start to degenerate. This lead, which has been stored up in your body for a long time, starts to release. 
And there are some studies suggesting that uh, symptoms of Alzheimer's disease may be connected to lead re-releasing into your blood ever after having been stored for a long time. So again, you know, the body is a complicated thing. Ecology is a complicated thing. Chemistry is a complicated thing. And it would be useful to us to think more subtly about the impacts of these things than we typically do. Go ahead. I think this issue is a philosophic issue. And very briefly, I'm going to say, when the um, Europeans came to this country, they philosophically, they said that property was more valuable than life. The Indians, no matter whatever, whatever tribe they had, they had a perceptive. Perception was that I can no more own the land than the air I breathe. And the point I'm making is that that philosophical point of view are challenging each other. And in this country, everybody's embraced and made free market capitalism like a religion. And I contend that things are going exactly like they're supposed to go. This is how it's supposed to go. And this is how it's going to go unless we philosophically really come to some clear idea, we as people, not the government, we as people, do we accept that the Native American says, I don't want to I don't want to assimilate because you destroy everything. And it's not an ethnic thing. It's a philosophical point of view. And we have to come to terms with whether we are going to continue on this path or we as people say, let's stop. But my question is, um, do you write about testosterone blockers in the water in your book? Uh, thanks. Um, I will say that, that uh, you may have heard some of these news stories that I don't know about testosterone blockers, but if you think about um, the hormone-disrupting chemicals we've been talking about, there it seems to be something going on nationally where girls are pubescing earlier than they ever have, and boys uh, are developing what they call low sperm density. So, like, they're developing low sperm counts. This is—I don't know if you call this an epidemic. I don't know what a public health person would say. It's not an epidemic, but it's a—it's a phenomenon that it seems to be popping up all over the place. So, these are indicators of hormonal disruptions, and there is some thought that this is chemically induced. But can I, if I may, return to your original point, which I completely wholeheartedly agree with, and is at the root of this. This is the philosophical question that underlies the synthetic century. Now, I, the practical tip thing, I say, I've, I've given you some, and there's lots more in the book and on these websites, but it does really, if you think hard about this, it makes you really ask strong questions about the whole story. Seventh generation, just you mentioned Native American. Seventh generation, the name of the company comes from a seventh generation, from a Native American idea that you should do, you should, you should act in no way that would negatively affect the seventh generation after the act, right? So your act should be so benign that it would not impact negatively seven generations later, which is an entirely different way of thinking about things than like make a quick hit profit on something, and if it causes massive personal or public health problems, then we're not really going to deal with that. This brings up, for those of you who are interested in economics or economic theory, this whole idea of externalized costs. Like you create a product, it creates problems down the line, but you don't have to pay for it because you've just made the product and you're not responsible for what happens. This is like, you know, you pollute, pollute something that downstream, but that downstream is not your problem. You, your company is here. You don't have to clean that up. And you think downstream in any way you want. But if something that happens later, you know, more subtly farther away from you is not your deal. That's the government's deal or that's somebody else's deal. That If you can think about ways to make, this is like, how can you make McDonald's pay for the fact that it's contributing to obesity? 
They say, it's not our problem, we just make food. Well, they don't just make food, they also make obesity. You know, it's like cigarette companies say, well, we didn't make cancer, well, you make the products that make, you know, so if there's gotta be some way to rethink this so that you make companies absorb the real cost, and if they absorb the real cost, their products would be unmanageably expensive, theoretically, and then they'd have to make different kinds of products. So I don't, I mean, we could talk all night about this, but what I would, as I said at the beginning, I would like you to try wrestling with some of the deeper questions, and the simple questions will take care of themselves. You've probably already done most of them. But the deeper questions, the philosophical questions about what's going on out there and what impact we can have, this is a, real quick, there are basically two ways to think about this. There's like a political way to react to this, which is to say, get pissed off, which people are doing in lots of states, including this one, by the way. And the other one is to think as a, as a consumer, like in terms of your market pressure. So when you think about, you know, Michael Pollan says buying food is a political act, like or Wendell Berry, whoever you, you think about it. You, when you buy an organic apple, it's not just a market thing, it's also a political thing because you are choosing to put your money in this direction and not in that direction. You can do that across the consumer landscape. I mean, I don't like thinking about human beings as consumers, but in this particular case, let's think about them as consumers and you can actually have a you know, demonstrable impact on things. If you look at Walmart, for example, Walmart, lo and behold, decides to stock organic milk, changing like that the entire organic milk industry. Walmart, who we all love to hate, also started saying, we, just recently, we will stock no products that use these toxic flame retardants, changing the market for that stuff overnight. So when Walmart acts, massive you know, industry-wide things change. And why do they act? They act because typically, pissed off mothers accumulate in enough numbers to say, we no longer want this stuff in your store, right? Now, we, this is a whole other topic, but women really, in a lot of ways, hold the key to this because women are the, the, per, hold the purchasing power. And you know, if, when women get together and start acting on this as they did in Maine, as they're starting to do in other states, things actually start to happen because it's very hard for a state legislator to turn their back on a bunch of angry mothers. <laughs> I found, like lobbyists, that's a powerful group. Pissed off mothers, more powerful group. Uh, and maybe we should end on that note. So uh, one more question. Okay, Maryland. So Maine, Maine a few years ago banned things like phthalates. Uh, they banned flame retardants. And then lo and behold, they, they came up with legislation that would, would create a comprehensive anti-toxics bill which is to list a lot of these chemicals that we've been talking about, get them on a list, and start thinking about ways to get them out of Maine. Start, in, put industries on notice, this stuff is going away, here's notice, so start figuring out how to not make stuff with them, or you will not be allowed to sell your products in Maine. Maryland is taking that, I, that page out of the Maine's playbook and is trying to do that here. So Maryland is, Maine is ahead, California's ahead, a couple other places, Oregon is ahead, Washington State. They, some of these states are really doing some cool stuff. Maryland is right there in the very next generation of states that's doing stuff. Uh, Maryland Perg is very active in this. I'm sure Baltimore Greenworks is doing a lot of stuff. This is happening. It was moving through the, the system last year in the legislature. It didn't, some of it didn't get through. Um, but things are happening, and you ought to keep an ear out for it. It's, it's a very exciting, exciting thing. Yeah, I mean, again, you may not want to be a political act, you know, a political actor. You may want to be a consumer actor, but act somehow, like do something. If you can pick up the phone, if you can get a, you know, get these politicians to, to do something, but shop smarter, or even better, stop buying stuff. You know, just 
don't buy stuff. That would be a great thing to do. Just don't buy anything. Remember, like, go old school. Just stay home. Like, what if they held a sale and no one showed up, you know? <laughs> be a great thing to do. Okay, last thing. I'm sure you guys need to get out of here. Go ahead. Say something about water. Water. I, I wish I knew more about fluoride. I, I, nothing about me wants to like fluoride. Fluoride makes your bones stronger, makes your teeth stronger. If that's true, then put it in toothpaste and put it on your teeth. Like, why do you need systemic fluoride to make your teeth better? I don't understand that. It's just too complicated for me to get my head around. I don't know. I will tell you that I was in, a, in Wilmington when I was doing the water chapter. I canoed. The Brandywine River is what supplies northern Delaware with drinking water. So what did I do for that chapter? I canoed down the Brandywine, and I looked at all the... Uh, farm runoff coming into the Brandywine, and I looked at all the, you know, the, the flooding coming off the shopping mall parking lots coming into the Brandywine, and then I went into the water treatment plant, not the wastewater, not the sewage treatment, but the drinking water treatment plant, and in there they do this to take this stuff out and this to take that stuff out, and they dump in the chlorine, and they dump in the fluoride, and I looked at the big bags of fluoride, which have a skull and crossbones on them that is like this big, and chlorine, as you know, you can't don't want to drink chlorine, but you do drink chlorine. So I, I don't know. I mean, there's a, these water treatment plants were built 150 years ago to deal with stuff like cholera, right? Dysentery, these like biological things you want to kill. And we can figure out how to kill them. We don't know how to kill Viagra. And we don't know how to kill pesticides running off of suburban lawns or farms. That's the problem for these guys. And so they're trying to come up with technology that can get this stuff out, as opposed to like you're taking your philosophical point and preventing the stuff from getting in in the first place. Like, Sorry, I'm ranting again, but you know you can you can get into this mindset where you think you can engineer a solution to every problem, and that may not in fact be true. It may be true that you have to just stop doing stuff. Water will be. I'm sure this isn't news to you, but water will be the source of the next world war. I mean, I forget about oil. Like oil is one thing. When water starts drying up, it's going to be a problem. Gasland about fracking. Yeah, yeah. There are lots of. There's a lot of good stuff going on out there. I mean, things are happening. There's movement afoot. It will eventually trickle into the common consciousness. You're welcome. Uh, but you know, for those of you who are here, you know, it's it, it, the problem of being like on the front edge of stuff. Is it, it is your responsibility to kind of spread the word. Like it's not enough just to sit there and grind your teeth and get pissed off. It actually is worth uh, doing something. So I, you know, if I could, you know, energize you at all. Like don't just shop for yourself or your kids, but like make this something. Like, I, it really pisses me off that my neighbors all use pesticides. It really pisses me off. My daughter is seven years old. She's all freaked out now because she walks by. All our neighbors have the little thing, don't walk here. And she's like, you know, not, not to, like, romanticize her, but she's like, why are they? And I'm like, I don't know. They do know. They live next to me. They know, right? They know. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So. Should we call quits? Oh, go ahead. Maryland Perg, great place to turn to. Nationally, the Environmental Working Group is based in Washington. They're fantastic. Safer Families, Safer, safer Chemicals, Safer Families is another one. All the big organizations, you know, Greenpeace, they all have something going. EDA, Environmental Defense Fund, NRDC, all these guys have a hand in this when it comes to lobbying. And I will tell you that Frank Laudenberg, the senator from New Jersey, has got legislation about updating what they call TOSCA, which is the big National Toxic Substances Control Act, which hasn't been updated in 40 years, 4-0. Since Rachel Carson was around, the, the toxic legislation at the federal level has not shifted. But 
it's happening a little bit state by state. It's like climate change. Climate change is really happening at the state level, not at the federal level. Why? Because the lobbyists have their hands around the neck of Washington. It's harder for state for lobbyists to get their hands around 50 state legislators. Thank God, you know. But in Washington, they they own the game. So if I were you and you want to like have some act, you know, have a sense that you can personally like move the ball down the field, think about working at a state level. I think that is much more manageable. Okay, it's hot. You guys are ready to go. Thank you very much for coming out.